Chapter 9 The walk over to Anthea's involved a rather lengthy detour via the bakery and the posh chocolate shop. Well, according to Barney, the woman wasn't eating for fear of being labelled fat by the stereotypically brainwashed masses. But if Humphrey still knew her at all, and he was fairly sure that he did, she would not be able to pass up an opportunity to enthusiastically overindulge herself in his company. It would certainly not be the first time. It really was turning into an absolutely momentous day. Coming out of the bakery with the most expensive cake he could afford, he was accosted by two young men and called a greedy fat slob. And then, on his way out of the other shop, clutching a tiny little bag of the cheapest misshapen chocolates they sold, he was picked out by the driver of a passing motor car and identified to all and sundry as a lumpy, lazy old lard bucket. Although, admittedly, that one had upset him a little. He wasn't old yet, surely. Even if he was, he had somehow managed to transport himself back 14 years or so, using nothing more than his bulk and a tragically all-too-predictable general public. Old indeed. A bloody cheek. His final approach to her shop door was conducted in several stages. First, he straightened his tie and removed his earrings. Snoopy, of course, and on the tie as well. Then there was a fairly cowardly little peer-in at the very bottom corner of the window. He hadn't seen much, but that wasn't a problem. He was building up his courage, getting a feel for precisely who was in that building, and whether they regarded him as a friend or a foe. His next look-in, from a position of relative safety hidden behind a cabinet full of commemorative crockery and unwanted mementos from Ibiza, revealed that the shop seemed to be deserted. That was just the shop, though. He couldn't see into that little storeroom from there. He straightened his tie one more time and then tried the door. Locked. He really had gone back 14 years or so in time. Wait a minute. There were shadows moving around in there. Oh, crikey. Anthea. She stared at him, motionless. He smiled and waved his sponge cake at her. The chocolates looked pathetic and would not have impressed anyone. In fact, he was so ashamed of them, he had eaten every single one of them, somewhere in between straightening his tie the first time and then nearly strangling himself by doing it again for a second. He probably looked guilty as well. Never mind, it would intrigue her all the more. He was going to have to stop staring at her middle like that, or she would use that as fuel to feed her growing complex. She was still as beautiful as ever. More beautiful than ever, if that were even possible. He was going to stay cool, though. He could still be her hero, if he could just stay cool. Anthea, open this door. Ah, that brave voice again. He hadn't heard that for a while. It always sounded impressive. It nearly always got him into trouble as well, but it always sounded impressive while it was doing so. Anthea came over immediately and unlocked the door. Hello, Mumbles. Hello, Snoopy. Not a bad icebreaker, all things considered. That pet name for her had only ever been deployed during periods in their life when things were going really, really well. Actually, it was quite possible that this was the first time he'd ever actually used it. At least, anywhere that she could have actually heard it.
His coolness suffered a sudden and severe increase in temperature as he realised that she was locking the door again behind him. What are you doing? That voice, it was just marvellous. It gave nothing away of the apprehension he felt, ever so slightly, at that moment. I'm sorry, I don't feel like being around people today. I see too many people as it is, and I'm still not very good with them. Humphrey looked around. There's no radio. You what? You used to have the radio or the television on all the time. Constant noise. You couldn't cope without it. She looked over towards the radio as though its existence was something she'd completely forgotten about. My whole life is constant noise and chaos. I don't need any more. He took that as his cue to keep quiet. It was a difficult thing to try to achieve, what with everything he wanted to say to her. In the end, he used his newfound time-travelling powers to place himself mentally into their old loft space. He needed to stay quiet there, otherwise she would have found him and placed serious demands on him. He might well have had a hard day at work and might well have needed someone to talk to about it. But he'd had to work towards that, being first expected to provide services to her. It was never the right way around, that arrangement. He was always far too distracted and she was always far too frustrated, depending upon how long he'd managed to stay quiet for and consequently how long it had taken her to find him. Still, at least it had always helped to make a night of things. Mutual resentment was a very effective sexual appetite suppressant between them, although they'd always managed to keep the resentment itself well fed. Not especially during their brief encounters, but most definitely during the inevitable recriminations afterwards. Barney probably hadn't even seen the inside of that spare room yet, much less had his own key cut for it. Why are you wearing that tie? He shrugged with such vim that his shoulders very nearly met his ears. It's an offset scheme I've got going which allows me to wear any underwear I like during business hours without feeling too compromised, either one way or the other. He's very macho, is Snoopy. She began to carefully rearrange her paperbacks, although the look of concentration on her face reflected not that action, but the energy she was devoting to finding the right words to continue their conversation. What did Barney tell you? What do you think Barney told me? Did he ask you for your help? Humphrey smiled. No, my darling. You did that. What could she say? Once upon a time she would instinctively have gone on the attack. But not now. They had wasted so much of their time together arguing about things that just didn't matter. Well, she had anyway. He had just stood there and taken it. Or made his own stand and taken himself away from her and made things worse. Congratulations, Anthea. What was he talking about specifically? Was it her new weekly column giving out sex advice in one of the biggest newspapers around they were so excited about? Or was it her guest appearance on Loose Women that had done it, road testing a new range of root vegetables aimed at women and genetically modified to specifically resemble generously proportioned male genitalia? Or maybe it was the fact that she hadn't eaten anything for four whole days now on account of being called cuddly in one of the magazines which had hitherto been rather complimentary about her appearance. 
She would look as thin as a rape by the time she hit that wedding. Without Barney. Or perhaps he was simply talking about their baby. Thank you. She really was concentrating hard on those books, wasn't she? She probably needed help with that task, a woman in her condition. He strode purposefully over to her and took six Geoffrey Archer novels off her hands. Almost certainly the first time that had ever happened on those premises. I want you to leave everything to me, okay? I'll sort it for you. Their eyes met. Are you sure? He looked away, very briefly. Then he gathered together his thoughts, his dreams and his courage and looked back at her, fixing her with a look of immense intensity. I promise. She then breathed a sigh of relief as she loaded the weight of her own little world upon his shoulders. He barely even felt it, so transfixed was he by the difference in her whole demeanour. She was radiant, stunning, captivating. He would have gladly done anything for her. Although he did put those Geoffrey Archer books down pretty quickly, just in case she thought to take him up on that rather bold internal statement by making him actually buy all six of the bloody things. Is that a cake? He coughed gently, giving himself the perfect excuse to cover his growing smile with his hand. Yes, it is. It's quite a small one, I'm afraid, but then size isn't everything, is it? She coughed quite violently, giving herself the perfect excuse to get out of answering that question. We can always share it, Mumbles. Have you got a knife anywhere in this place? No. You told me years ago that I shouldn't keep things like that around, on account of my temperament. God, I must be brave. Yes, you must be. She took the cake box from him, deliberately allowing her fingers to touch his as she did so. How about I take a bite, and then you take a bite? My bites might be bigger, though, on account of the fact that I haven't eaten for four days. That sounds very fair to me. She opened the box. He hadn't been wrong about the size of it. Most men might have lied about that just to get her hopes up. But he had never lied to her about anything. It wasn't the size of the cake that mattered anyway, so much as the message he'd had them put in icing across the top of it. Congratulations, Anthea and Barney. He can have my half if you want. I won't mind. No, no, I think it's your half. By rights. Ah, in that case we'd better not ever tell Barney then. I wasn't planning to. She looked at the cake longingly, lifted it to her lips, licked those lips slowly, and then took a sudden and large bite out of it. Humphrey looked distinctly uncomfortable. Why was that then? I think Barney will make a great dad, Anthea. She passed the cake back to him, swallowed her own mouthful, and then nodded. It wasn't planned, you know. No? He took his own bite from the cake, chewed it very slowly, and just watched her. You're probably wondering about timings and things. Am I? 
It couldn't be yours. He handed her back the cake. She scrutinised it for a moment. Let me just rephrase that. What I meant to say was, it would be very inconvenient for it to be yours. The icing held her complete attention while she waited for him to reply. When he did, his voice was kinder and more gentle than she'd been expecting. As it happens, I completely agree with you. She looked up, enticed by the calmness of his words. He smiled at her warmly. A kid needs two parents, don't you think? And even then, there's not much point in just having a father. Not when you can have a dad. You're a very kind man. A soft touch, do you mean? No, I mean you're a very good man. It's the underwear, I'm telling you. Pink bows and not much else. Anthea laughed, a joyous sound to behold if ever there was one. So, it's back to this place then. Yes, I thought we could diversify a bit. Still a charitable organisation, but with a coffee shop or something so we can make a more reliable living. Barney's good with people. He can sing to them while they're having their cappuccinos. We can sell tickets. Humphrey mulled that particular business plan over for a moment. Just a thought, Mumbles. But you might just be able to raise more money by making sure that he doesn't sing to them. You could hold them to ransom on that score, I should think. Anthea looked distinctly unimpressed. What are you talking about? Have you actually heard him singing? Yes, of course. On Girls, Girls, Girls. He's got a beautiful voice. A sexy voice. And you leave him alone. Humphrey smiled gently. Just don't expect him to sound like that all the time, that's all. I mean, these computers, they can make anyone sound beautiful and sexy. Even me, I should think. In a different world and a different time, they would have fallen into each other's arms at that point. They would have kissed one another passionately and then adjourned to the storeroom, somewhere safe to indulge their mutual desires away from the quizzical gaze of Geoffrey Archer. Instead, they remained silent and motionless. I'll have to be nice to people, though. That's the only thing. Just be yourself. That's all you can be. They might not like who that is very much. Why? You're not too bad. That was awkward. She didn't take kindly to compliments. Even ones cunningly disguised as gentle insults in the way that one had been. But then, an absolute miracle. No, I'm not. You're right. It was a good job he had that counter to lean on, or he may well have collapsed from the shock of hearing her say that. Self-confidence and an acknowledgement for him. Let the rest of the day fling at him what it may. He bit himself off another piece of that cake, triumphantly. Sandra was here earlier on. His mouth stopped moving for a second. Really? Pardon? Why could nobody ever understand a word he said when he had his mouth full? He shifted the abstraction to one side with his finger 
and then tried again. How is she? Still annoying. Still jealous of me, too, although she pretends that she isn't. I don't rub her nose in it. Much. Good. You shouldn't really do that. You really don't want to antagonise her. I wouldn't bet on that, Humphrey. I just hope she puts on more weight than I do, that's all. Is that something all sisters wish for each other? They're very curious. I'm talking about pregnancy weight. Blimey, not another one. I thought her husband was never home for more than a few days at a time. No, he's been back for three months now. Decided he couldn't live without her or some such nonsense. He didn't waste any time either. She's almost three months gone herself. Anyway, you don't need that long to get somebody pregnant, you know. It really only takes a few seconds. Yes, she was quite right, of course, as always. And tell me, how is her husband? He's making up for lost time with her, although I gather she's making him work for it. Still, she must have given in to him somewhere along the line, mustn't she? So she's three months pregnant. No, I'm three months pregnant. She couldn't be, could she? Because Michael wasn't on that boat with her then, was he? Oh no, that's right. He wasn't. It was just her, availing herself of Humphrey's quite unique life coaching skills. He really didn't want to swallow that cake now. He hadn't brought any more toothpicks with him either. And how come there were so many Michaels about? What's the matter? Did you bite off more than you could chew, Snoopy? It serves you right for taking such a big mouthful. God, this conversation was near the knuckle. Even suggesting it was near the knuckle was near the knuckle, given some of the places those right-hand knuckles had visited, oh, three months ago. Does she still look like a slag? Wasn't that funny? They must have both heard him say that at precisely the same moment. No, 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 not that sort of slag. Honestly, no, the slag brothers, that pair of hairy siblings who drove the Boldermobile in the wacky races. What the hell was he going on about? He wanted to know if she was still going easy on the lawn-mowing aspect of her general appearance, that was all. Essentially, would she still remind him so very much of her sister, if he were to see her again? Although, by the sounds of things, he would never see her again from quite the same perspective. She's wanted a baby for years. I didn't know that. Really? Apparently. But she wasn't too keen on giving up her cushy little lifestyle. She can't be a selfish bitch now, can she? Humphrey smiled. No, she couldn't. She didn't really want to be. Not any more. She told him that in the office of Somehow, over two bags of Maltesers, on the day they went up to Liverpool. Told him how frustrated she was that her husband didn't seem to really appreciate her, and how she wanted him to make love to her like he meant it. And if he could get her pregnant as well, just to give her a selfless purpose to her existence, so much the better. Well, Humphrey had listened to that all right. He had intended to tell her to bin the television remote and get her husband to do a few exercises. The same sort of exercises he had advised that lady in Cardiff to get her husband interested in as well, as a matter of fact. Instead, he had casually mentioned some of the things he used to do for ladies in her situation, 
and had invited her to come and find him, if she was ever at all interested. Sandra would have found herself sleeping on her own, just like that lady in Cardiff. If only she hadn't reminded him so very much of his beloved ex-wife. That little goatee of hers, that had been the absolute clincher. She didn't happen to mention me at all, did she? In what context? Well, that night. You know, the performance. I never did find out what she thought of it. I don't think she was very impressed with it. She walked out before the end, if you recall. Eh? That wasn't quite the way he remembered it. For what it's worth, I thought it was a really good performance. You really did it beautifully. I never got a chance to thank you for your efforts, did I? Oh, she was talking about his directorial stint on Broadway. Ah, it was entirely my pleasure. He did know that she wasn't talking about his directorial stint on Broadway, right? I bought the DVD of The Voyage as a memento, you know. It held such lovely memories. I will never be able to thank you enough for those last 15 minutes. They were Barney's 15 minutes, not mine. Actually, they cut most of that show out of it. No, I'm talking about when he wasn't there. Ah, yes. It had to be assumed that none of those minutes had made it to the final edit of the thing. Well done, Louise. You do know, don't you? Know what? That it couldn't be Barney's. I wish it was, but it just couldn't be. Unless something burst, if you get my drift. Something must have burst at some stage, Anthea. Barney's the dad, he told me so. She shook her head and smiled. Barney's a bit naive when it comes to things like that. Humphrey shook his head and smiled. I love that boy, Mumbles. Yes, so do I. Those things do leak, you know. You read about it all the time. Unscrupulous women trying to trap men to force them into continuing in relationships which would benefit far more from getting an earful of the last rites. People like that do all sorts of things. She was well aware of that. Well aware. People who were suddenly gripped by the feeling that they may actually want children after all. People like that could probably do just about anything. Even people like Anthea, when she was married to Humphrey. She had taken to sewing replacement buttons onto his blouses while lying in bed in the dark. Not the actions of a woman desperate to deceive her husband on the conceiving front, you wouldn't think. But as she perceived, it was very difficult to keep track of all those needles in the dark. They could have been making holes in all manner of things. Or there was always the waste paper basket in their bedroom. All kinds of used items used to find themselves cast off in there. She did take slight exception to his use of the word unscrupulous and the phrase people like that. However, the rest of what he just said was very perspicacious. And thank goodness it had never come to anything or else where the hell would they all be now? Is she going to be in again today? Who? Your sister? No, she only came in to say goodbye actually. Michael's found a good job up in Sheffield and so they're moving up there. 
What a pity. Still, never mind. It was probably for the best. I'm bloody glad she's gone. I was getting unbelievably sick and tired of listening to her describing to me in every gory detail the night she got herself pregnant. Humphrey felt every single hair on his body stand on end. Oh, yes. She must have been lying. I mean, four hours? And she said he stroked her hair and told her how beautiful she was afterwards. Well, she must have been lying. Although, if you listen to her, Michael's a changed man since he gave up that job. She's got him doing all sorts of spectacular things in the bedroom. And I'm not just talking about putting up flat-packed furniture, either. Humphrey smiled broadly. She's happy, then? Yes. She really is. Just as well, really. Like you said, kids need parents. You and I would possibly have had to do that. He thought for a moment. I'm glad we never had to. I would never have wanted to be with you because I had to be. You didn't want to be with me at all, though, did you? That's why you went to so much trouble to get me to go out with Barney. He turned away from her. This was going to be the tough bit. He noticed that pile of Geoffrey Archie books again, sitting there smugly under the distinctly erroneous impression that they also had Humphrey's name on them. Not damn likely. He hoped she hadn't noticed a way of making an easy sale and quickly turned away from her again, but in the other direction. Silla Black's autobiography waited for him over there. Hey, what a great wedding present for his new stepmother. With a bit more warning, of course, he could have had someone sit down and try to make sense of the Lovewell family tree as it stood to that date. That would have been a nice gift, too. Perhaps it was just as well he had neither been invited to the nuptials, nor even let into the details of where and when they might be. He would only have tried to upstage the bride, anyway. So she was pregnant, then, with his stepbrother, or stepsister, That did make better reading than having her pregnant with her own stepson's baby. It put a bit more class back into proceedings. You were asking why I went to so much trouble to get you to go out with Barney. I know why. Fair enough. She was going to give him both barrels now, telling him how much he'd never loved her, even though he did, how he'd never cared about her at all, even though he did, how he'd given up on her, So fed up was he of hearing from her how worthless she was. Actually, he might just give her that one. It's because you love me. Pardon? You know I love you. Don't you, Humphrey? You don't have to say that. Yes, I do. He took her hand and gently kissed it. It was a smooth manoeuvre. It was a very smooth manoeuvre. He'd seen it in a film somewhere. Aliens. Was that it? You know, she did leave a message for you, now I come to think of it. She didn't look angry and she didn't look betrayed. Sandra had obviously not told her then. God bless that slag. Or something like that. She said to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Does that mean something to you? He nodded, smiling gently as he did so. Yeah, it means everything to me.
figure Manthea her hand back in a minute. He might never again have the chance to hold it this tightly. Certainly not this romantically. Closure was good. It was highly recommended. Perhaps they should have gone for that years before. They could have been best friends instead of two people trapped in an existence neither one of them would ever have wished for the other. Sex. That's what had ruined it. The same way it had ruined his friendship with Louise. At least she had finally cut him adrift on the basis that she couldn't wait for him for more than 15 minutes. Wow. The monumental irony of that statement. Still, at least the two of them had never crossed that awful line. They would have. There was no doubt whatsoever about that. If Louise had been in that cabin waiting for him, she would have had an evening to remember, all right. Michael would have won whatever bizarre little game he was playing, and she would be hurling her guts out every morning cursing Humphrey, not his father. If, indeed, his father was the father. Crikey. No wonder she was having trouble keeping food down. The thought of Michael performing his trademark little punch of victory in any kind of bedroom scenario involving her made Humphrey himself feel quite queasy. I'm so sorry, Snoopy. She meant it. Don't be mumbles. It'll be all right. He meant it too. The way she was looking at him. She would never look at Barney like that. It almost made him want to run outside and fling himself under the nearest double-decker. Not from any innate desire to prematurely high-five St Peter. No, no, no. He wanted to make sure he had his name down as early as possible for their next little excursion into a lifetime spent together. Was he only dreaming, or was this burning an eternal flame? The lot of them really could be inexorably linked for all eternity, and, well, Michael wasn't getting any younger despite his new hair colour trying to give evidence to the contrary. He might get there first and fling his early morning beach town over Anthea just for pure spite. No way. Next time she was his. Although, having said that, this time she was supposed to have been his and it hadn't worked out too brilliantly, had it? He still wouldn't have changed one single moment of it. Not if it meant she would never look at him like that. And there was still a chance that Barney would screw up in some way. Humphrey would have cheerfully run outside and flung himself under the nearest double deck at that very moment if it would have ensured unequivocally that Barney would not screw up in some way. As it was, at the very least, he was going to have to go and buy himself at least two chocolate double deckers. You're my hero. You know that? You don't have to say that. Yes, I do. You're going to help us. Absolutely. He was Rhett Butler. She was Scarlett O'Hara. That was a good film, that one. What was it called? Dumb and Dumber. Was that it? How? Pardon? How are you going to help us? He would have loved to have been able to tell her, but lawyers were funny people, a fact to which he himself could have testified better than anyone. They tended to come down a bit heavy on people who knew too much about the intentions of others, particularly when those intentions were, not to put too fine a point on things, highly dodgy. I can't really tell you, Mumbles. You haven't got a plan at all, have you? 
Her hero began taking off his armour right before her eyes. It wasn't even put away tidily, just dumped wherever it happened to fall. He was just on his way to the fridge for a cold beer, which he fully intended drinking down in one, straight from the can, before belching out her name in Morse code as some sort of strange mating ritual designed to impress her, when he was given the opportunity to actually respond to her own question for himself. Of course I've got a plan. Thank God. The beer was confiscated. The hero returned. He quickly got himself dressed again. Fortunately, the armour was secured with Velcro. But it might just be skirting along the very edges of being legal. She looked worried. Why, though, was a mystery. Where was the trust? How do you mean? And now she looked even more worried. What kind of a hero would let that happen? I mean that it is now entirely my problem. Relief again. Thank goodness. He flashed her a most impressive wink and smile combination of the sort he'd once seen in a film somewhere. Night of the Living Dead, was that it? Then he summoned his white horse and prepared to leave the scene. Perhaps his white horse was deaf. Maybe this was its day off. Perhaps it was, at that very moment, leafing through the equine union rules regarding sensible loading limits. This was one hell of a hefty knight who expected it to somehow crawl away on all fours under his weight. What the heck? Humphrey had no particular beef with the RSPCA. He unlocked the door for himself and prepared to make his own exit from the scene, at his own pace via anywhere in that street or the next, which sold double-deckers. Humphrey? God damn it! So much for any sort of heroic departure. He had things to do, couldn't she see that? With those magnificently beautiful eyes of hers, she must have been able to see that. You're not going to do something totally ridiculous, are you? The eyebrow. The James Bond eyebrow. That would soon shut her up. Ridiculous? Come on, Mumbles, you know me. Indeed I do, Snoopy. That's why I'm asking. All right then, let me ask you this. When could you ever really rely on me when we were married? And I hate to put words in your mouth, but I'd be prepared to go out on every limb not currently out there rattling the collecting tin in order to make your monthly payments that the answer you really desperately want to give me is never. Well, that wasn't a no. How often did you even know where I was? That tended to depend on whether or not I had a family bag of Maltesers to hand. He smiled at her one last time before extending his right hand towards her. Very reluctantly, she joined it at the United Nations border. He was quite amazing, a quite beautiful human being. Far too good for her, though. She'd been quite right about that bit, at least. Well, I promise you, you can rely on me now. And I think I'm quite safe in saying you will also know precisely where I'll be for the foreseeable future. Humphrey! Christ on a space hopper, Anthea. I'm trying to make a heroic exit here. 
How can I ever thank you? That eyebrow was still working entirely independently. The spring must have gone or something. No charge, darling. Although, if we do ever meet again, in any sort of afterlife or next life capacity, would you do me just one favour? What's that? Nothing kinky or she would have him. Knights had to follow a strict code of conduct, otherwise they would be velcroing their way out of their shining armour quicker than they could say King Arthur. Would you maybe shut your cake hole once in a while and just let me get on with things in my own way? Not only in bed, although that might be a good place to start. I'm talking flat packs, lawn mowing, decorating, worshipping you, telling you how wonderful you are without it turning into a debate for the Oxford Union. Do you sort of get where I'm coming from here, Mumbles? She nodded. Maybe you can ditch the women's underwear. I can do that. Purely on a quid pro quo basis. After all, you won't ever be keeping yours on for very long. Laughing about their sex life. Both of them, at the same time. Whoever would have thought it. Her laughter continued as his expression grew unexpectedly serious. In the meantime, you make sure that boy looks after you properly. She smiled. Thank you for helping him to do that. That would have been a good time to slide on out of there. To turn around and do his best to vanish into the crowd. There was just one more thing, however. Have you met Barney's mum yet at all? You must be joking. That is nowhere near the top of my list of priorities. Before I ever get near her, I'll have warmed up for it with a little lion taming, perhaps some snake charming, maybe even some alligator wrestling. At least I got off lightly with you in that respect. Putting up with Michael was bad enough, and I'm still lumbered with him. Take care, Mumbles. Oh, Merry Christmas and all that. If I don't see you again. Before that, I mean. That was a very good time to leave and he took his cue beautifully. He knew she was watching him, although he couldn't turn around in order to confirm it. He was keeping so cool that he couldn't have slowed down to do that, even if he'd wanted to, just in case his feet froze to the pavement. He made it to the corner and disappeared from her view, slumping against the wall as he did so. He had never felt such relief. He had made it. And those Geoffrey Archer tomes had not. Chapter 10 The two women sat, waiting nervously, in the window seat of the coffee shop. They probably shouldn't have been there. That was the source of the nerves. One of them definitely shouldn't have been there, given that it was three o'clock on a Monday afternoon and she went for the council, if that was not a contradiction in terms. Luckily, it had been her day to pop in and change her cardigan. Otherwise, she would not have been anywhere near her desk and could not have taken that phone call. Although, had she known in advance who was calling her, she never would have answered it. But then, she and Eleanor would not have been sat, waiting nervously, in the window seat of that coffee shop. 
God moved in mysterious ways, all right. Eleanor had been forced to accept that, given that she was an awful lot closer to meeting him than Ros was. The golden rule of being a decent appreciator was to keep a very well-defined boundary between your own life and that of whoever it was you decided to wear the colours of. That did not mean that you couldn't go through their rubbish from time to time, and it did not mean that you couldn't stalk them or monitor their activities with professional bugging equipment. But it did make it most unwise to ever actually meet them. You should never meet your heroes. It could only ever lead to disappointment. Although, in this particular case, they had already met him several times before. And he had asked them, most specifically, for their help. They really hadn't had any other choice. Good afternoon, ladies. Thank you very much for coming. Humphrey Aloysius Lovewell. Blimey. They'd been short of anyone suitable they could align themselves behind once Barney had been snapped up by the masses. Actually, Barney himself had completely disappeared during his time on board that cruise ship. They could have continued appreciating Barney, or at least his memory. Perhaps they would have done. After all, those t-shirts had set them back quite a few bob, and they hadn't yet really got a satisfactory amount of use out of them. But then Sandra had squeezed her way into their cabin at the crack of dawn with the contents of his dustbin. Barney's dustbin. The one from his cabin. How she had managed to get her hands on it had never quite been established. In fact, she'd been pretty evasive. She would certainly be no loss to the organisation now she'd got herself pregnant and beamed herself up north somewhere. It was while they were attempting to meticulously catalogue that rubbish that the future direction of that very organisation had become obvious. At first glance, there hadn't looked to be anything too exciting contained within it. Nothing whatsoever, just bits of paper, all screwed up, which turned out to be the notes concerning the show that Barney had starred in that night. Written by Humphrey, in beautifully neat writing, and embellished with a variety of doodles. There were lots of stairs, loads of tunnels, Battersea Power Station seemed to be a particular favourite too. A strong single theme could be found. Anthea. All the way through his workings, her name was there. He was going to have to do so-and-so and such-and-such such for Anthea. It was the thread that ran unbroken through every page. It was one of the most romantic things any of the three of them had ever seen, and in that moment they had found the new focus in their lives. Well... Ros and Eleanor had. Sandra had reacted with a rather surprising amount of rage, disappearing from the scene for some time before returning with a pile of clothes and a sharp knife, which she'd then proceeded to use to rip the garments into shreds. She'd seemed slightly perturbed by the realisation that her hated sister's ex-husband so obviously still adored her. She definitely hadn't been in the market to ever be an appreciator of his, and had pretty much cut all ties with Ros and Eleanor from that moment which had left just the two of them, Hal's angels, with Hal, of course, being Humphrey Aloysius Lovewell. I would buy you both a coffee, but I'm afraid I am slightly impecunious at the moment. Please forgive me. He neglected to mention the fact that he'd just blown his last fiver on enough double-deckers to start up his own chocolate bus company. They didn't need to know that. Besides, there was no evidence left of it now. 
Rose was on her feet in an instant. Mr Lovewell, you are a taxpayer, right? Well, shall we say that the taxman certainly knows of me? In fact, I have it on very good authority that he's rather keen to find out what I'm up to these days. Right. Well, I work for the council, if that is not a contradiction in terms. And this is a meeting conducted during regular council hours. The fact that we will not be discussing council business is neither here nor there. It's on expenses. Right. Hot chocolates all round, then. And every biscuit, muffin and flapjack she could carry. That left Eleanor on her own with Humphrey. You had a visit from Barney earlier on, I think. Yes. How do you know that? Have you been spying on me? Oh, the laughter. It sounded fake, mainly because it was. Spying wasn't quite the word she might have chosen, but it was appropriate enough until she could come up with a better one. He's Humphrey now, anyway. But then, what would that make you? And then? It would probably make me superfluous, I should think. And then? If it weren't for the fact he won't have to suffer the indignities of being Humphrey Lovewell for very much longer. Not with your help. How do you mean? Barney Adams will be back in your lives just as quickly as I can arrange it. If you want him, that is. Barney? He's out of our league now. Too famous. Too popular. Probably changed beyond all recognition, too. He still looks the same. Especially from behind. Not that I was looking, you understand. It's just really rather hard to miss. Eleanor frowned at him. There's more to the appreciation like than just physical appearances, you know, Mr Lovewell. Why was she looking him up and down like that? Fine, so his own physical appearance had degenerated quite significantly of late. But he was a good person. When he wasn't busy being a bastard, of course. Just what exactly was she trying to get at? What kind of a person is he now? Too big for his boots, I suppose. He thought back to the rest of the figure which had presented itself to him in his office earlier on. Barney had changed. He had a purpose now. A bit like Humphrey himself. Humphrey had a dual purpose, in fact, with the elimination of an entire coffee shop's worth of snacks, temporarily deposing even Barney's future welfare from its rather more worthy position as the main focus of their meeting. Ross called things to order by dramatically banging her spoon on the side of her cup. She was used to taking the lead in these sorts of meetings, of course, working for the council as she did, if that was not a contradiction in terms. All decent meetings began with her dramatically banging her spoon on the side of her cup. Then they moved on to the very important business of deciding which biscuits they should have and how many. If they were lucky, that would take up most of the rest of the meeting. There was so much nostalgia to be evoked from a little chat about custard creams or lemon puffs it was usually so much more interesting to just go with the flow on the subject and forget all about whatever boring council business had brought them all together in the first place. Right. You mentioned wanting our help, Mr Lovewell. Yes. You know, you can call me Humphrey, if you want to. The two women exchanged terrified glances. That was a step too far, surely. First name terms with the man who was currently the temporary centre of the universe they took the space shuttle to whenever their realities became too boring. 
That was overstepping the mark and no mistake. Roz watched him dip his Bourbon biscuit in his hot chocolate, carefully submerge it three times and then bite the thing in half. That would be precisely how she would eat hers from now on as well then. Would you mind if we just took your picture? Whatever for? Eleanor rummaged through her gingham bag for her camera phone and her glasses. It was so dark in that bag that she would need to find her glasses before she could find her phone. But she couldn't find her glasses because it was so dark. She needed the light on her phone to find her glasses. She needed to find her phone to find her glasses to find her phone. And there was a definite flaw in her plan there somewhere. Never mind. Roz tutted loudly. Old people were such a liability. Mind you, young people weren't much better. A picture with Humphrey would have been a lovely thing to have had in her possession, even if he was besotted with another woman. That was the whole appeal of him anyway. Thanks, Eleanor. You wouldn't happen to be an overall charge of the nativity scene in the shopping precinct, I suppose. Only, if you are, I'm after a favour on that score too. Rose looked blank. That was her default setting, whenever forced to deal with the public in any kind of official capacity. If they could find her. I really don't know, actually. I haven't checked my emails for a while. Although she had taken the opportunity of deleting them all, unread, during her brief visit to the office earlier on. Her recycle bin resembled something which might have been left lying around under Jim Callahan's government. You mentioned needing our help. Yes. Tell me, what's your view on criminal activity? For a good cause. Eleanor looked at him suspiciously. Ross barely batted an eyelid. Mr Lovewell, I work for the council. She glared at her elderly colleague, daring her to speak. She took the hint. What I don't know about criminal activity probably isn't worth knowing. Yes, that hadn't come out quite the way she'd intended it to. Still, never mind. This wouldn't be criminal activity anyway, not really. Because, I mean, criminals go to prison, don't they? They get three meals a day and a nice warm bed to sleep in. If a bedbug so much as looks at them, they get 50 grand in damages. They get all the attention of a trial. Their name becomes famous forever. Suddenly people care about them. They care where they are. They'd be missed if they weren't where they were supposed to be. They have no responsibilities and no future for them to have to worry about. But their lives have a meaning again, particularly if that criminal activity was for a good cause. The two women exchanged another look. He hadn't even been talking to them, had he? He'd been conversing with the contents of his taxpayer-funded hot chocolate, gently stirring it as he did so. And now he was reaching into his pocket for something. Barney's return, you see, will give Humphrey Lovewell the opportunity to take a break from life. What was he writing over there? And what the hell was he talking about? Ros decided to take the bull by the horns, never mind the health and safety implications. Which Humphrey Lovewell are we talking about? He stopped stirring his drink and seemed puzzled to even find her sitting there staring at him. Does it really matter? What's in her name anyway? It matters to us. Eleanor agreed with her unequivocally. Humphrey was touched. 
They wanted Barney Adams back, of course they did. Nobody wanted Humphrey. Apart from Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, and the TV licensing people, and the police, very shortly. His life was a mess, and it was scheduled to get even messier. He was in trouble now, whatever else he did. But it was no different to being overweight, really. If you're going to embrace obesity, you might as well make a good job of it. No point in being labelled a fat lard bucket just for a few extra pounds. There was light now, not at the end of the tunnel, but rather at the entrance to it. The warm glow of helping others, for no other reason than that he wanted to, and because it was unquestionably the right thing to do. It didn't make the tunnel any less daunting, but it did give him the courage to want to start willingly down it, hand in hand with a few pieces of paper. It was Barney himself who'd given him the idea. Humphrey had found one particular piece of paper again in his drawer earlier on, while Barney was talking to him. But it had also been down to him that Humphrey even had it in his possession in the first place. And these ladies. The idea of forging a contract for him had been their idea, even more than his. He wouldn't be asking them to accept any of the responsibility for things, though. He just wanted their signatures on one of the pieces of paper he held in his hand. That was all. Would you mind reading this out to me, please? I'd very much like to hear what it sounds like. I warn you, though, it'll be completely incomprehensible. Rose smiled. Mr. Lovewell, I do work for the council. If that is not a contradiction in terms. She cast a disparaging look towards Eleanor. At least there would be no arguments from her as to which one of them should read it. Not when the silly old fool couldn't even find her glasses. They were on her head, by the way, which Ros might have been good enough to mention. Then again, perhaps not. She cleared her throat, for no particular reason, and began to read from the pages before her. I, Humphrey Lovewell, being of sound body and mind, not daft enough to get myself lumbered with six Geoffrey Archer books anyway, would like to apologise for the distress and disappointment I have caused pretty much anyone who has ever known me. Not least the man who has been forced to live as me for the past three months of his life. Barney Adams trusted me with his career, his life and his happiness and I let him down spectacularly. Likewise, the lady who I hope he is damn proud to refer to as the mother of his unborn baby. They are now locked in a world of emptiness and misery they did not ask for, purely as a result of my actions. Their contract is a travesty. Their lives are not theirs. Their manager now is an unscrupulous charlatan who has done his best to imprison these two wonderful people in a world of vacuous, meaningless nothingness. And he can sue me for libel or slander or whatever the proper word for it is if he wants to. But I happen to know for a fact that he's on the fiddle, on the make, on the take and however many other phrases there are which could be taken to mean that he's a right thieving little toe rag. I happen to know he is under investigation by the revenue at this very moment, much the same as I am myself. He and I shared the same accountant, who no doubt divided his attentions equally between us, 60-50. I also happen to know that he runs a part-time brothel from his conservatory and drives a car with no MOT or insurance, but I'm not a grass, so I'll just leave that there.
I do not believe people like us should be able to destroy the lives of others purely for financial reasons. Nor because we object to the colour of a person's leg warmers. Ask Michael Lovewell QC about that. He'll know what I'm talking about. Barney's new manager is a slime ball, and he can sue me, provided he's happy to accept any payment in buttons. And I must confess to being no better myself. Because I had this young man under contract long before this other bloke came along. 70% of all earnings, that's what I was entitled to, because I'm a shameless predator. That contract was never cancelled, and his new one is not worth the paper it's written on. I enclose a copy of my one, signed by two very kind witnesses and dated before the one negotiated by that shyster. I'm releasing Barney from my one, though, because I am a nice guy. A part-time bastard, perhaps, but basically a nice guy. I very much hope Anthea's contract will meet a similar fate. Otherwise, I might just see fit to mention the brothel and all that stuff about the car. Barney would like his name back. He would like the opportunity to eat potatoes whenever he feels like it and to plonk that backside of his into any chair he damn well chooses. He wants to be able to pick up a penny in the street without everyone taking pictures of that fact and posting them all around the internet. Likewise Anthea, the beautiful Anthea, who is so terrified of incurring the wrath of the public that she's too afraid to be seen eating anything. All she wants is a return to the safety of her charity shop and the chance to be a worthwhile member of society. Barney is a natural entertainer who will be available for any legitimate and, please God, non-singing engagements as soon as his other louse of a manager relinquishes his control of him. Which should be just after my arrest for theft, deception, tax evasion, fraud and parking in a loading bay for no good reason. That should be their legacy. Not an endless stream of snaps in tomorrow's papier-mâché. My father used to use a phrase when I was a kid, over and over again, be a man. Usually when I'd been discovered in close proximity to the sort of leg warmers I've already mentioned. I never really appreciated what he was on about before, but I think I do now. Sometimes a man has to do what is right, no matter what that might mean for him. Well, I am a man, despite what anyone else might try to say to the contrary, especially Michael Lovewell QC, I think I've already mentioned him. Yes, I have. Thought so. Just checking, though. Can't be too careful. Sorry to digress. Sorry. Thanks for reading, or listening, or reproducing it without any kind of copyright infringement being implied. I'm not a bad person, really. Despite what anyone else might try to say to the contrary. That would be Michael Lovewell QC again. Don't worry, I know I've mentioned him before, so I won't need to digress again here. Oh, I have. Oh, Lord. Sorry about that. God, I sound all insincere now, don't I? I'm not, I promise you. Honest, I'm not. Ask anyone. Except, perhaps, Michael Lovewell QC. I have mentioned him before, haven't I? I'm sure I have. Humphrey Lovewell. XXX. The two women were rendered speechless. Actually, so was Humphrey. At least to begin with. His own sincerity had sounded pretty good when read out like that. Ros had even put in a few sound effects. A bad, scary voice whenever she was talking about that arsehole new manager of Barney's. And that arsehole old father of his. And a very nice, trustworthy sort of voice whenever she mentioned Humphrey himself. Or Barney. Or Anthea.
He should have shown more ambition in trying to get his point across and perhaps recorded her reading it. Then he could have taken over the airwaves like V and thrown himself upon the mercies of an even wider audience far more directly. Although he might just have done enough to get his point across without having to resort to that sort of attention-seeking. Crikey, he really must be getting old. What do you think? On one of the other pages I take responsibility for planning the Brinks map robbery and the kidnap of Shergar one afternoon in double maths. I was hopeless at maths, so I'm sure it will be totally believable. I'm also holding my hands up to any unsolved crimes of a rather more non-violent nature any police force in the land would care to pin on me. Oh, plus I've gone to great pains to mention, no less than five times, that I am not in fact in possession of a current television licence. Even if they ignore the rest, they won't ignore that. He didn't even own a television, but they probably would ignore that. Eleanor found her voice first. She could find the power of speech after a shock like that, and yet she couldn't manage to find her own reading glasses, sat there on top of her own head. Odd. Who is they, may I ask? Humphrey smiled cheerfully at her. Some of the weight dumped upon his shoulders so far that day, plus an awful lot which had been accumulating there throughout his whole lifetime, had simply vanished during the reading of that little masterpiece. The police, of course, and anyone else who might be interested. Now, I wonder if I might trouble you two ladies to just sign down there, please, as witnesses. It will add so much more credibility to things. Roz didn't much like the sound of that. That's just daft. You'll end up in prison somewhere if you don't watch yourself. He took a sip of his hot chocolate. What's your point? Without her glasses, though, Eleanor was able to see things from quite a different perspective. I think it's brilliant. Humphrey beamed at her. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was so nice to be appreciated. You're both off your trolleys then, if you think letting anyone see that is going to be a good idea. Taking responsibility for things, things that were not in any way your fault. He'd certainly never get a job working with the council. Not with an attitude like that. But don't you see, Roz? This is going to galvanise the nation. And we can put our names to it. We'll be as famous as him. Oh, I'm not trying to be famous. Fame was a nasty, carnivorous little customer. You couldn't kill it either. The only way to get rid of it was to have a firm resolve and the strength to put the telephone down on it when it rang you up and sounded so enticing. Otherwise it would convince you that you needed it. Then that you needed it a little more. Your life would be so empty without it. You didn't need freedom or integrity or the opportunity to go on holiday without forking out for an economy ticket for your own personal long-lens paparazzo. Fame was all you needed. Then, before you knew it, it had got you. You would eat any number of kangaroo testicles and witchetty grubs simply to attract its attentions. Only, your relationship was not in any way exclusive. Fame saw other people. You might be sitting at home crying your eyes out because it hadn't called you, and then someone else would call instead to tell you they'd seen it out and about cavorting with someone else. Someone more beautiful than you, or with a better body than you, 
or with fewer brains than you. But you wouldn't be able to accept the end of your relationship. And that was the killer. Fame had broken more hearts than Donny Osmond, and yet nobody ever showed it at the door. Nobody ever packed its bags for it and called it a cab. Nobody ever took a knife to all its shirts and sewed the contents of a tin of tuna into the lining of its cashmere coat. Nobody ever told it just what a low life it was, and then summoned a couple of lookalikes of Phil and Grant Mitchell to pop round and sort it out. Except Barney. Innocent little Barney. Barney had had the courage to tell it to go and sod right off. He had that head of his screwed on right, whichever one it was the crow man had seen fit to leave him with. His sensible head, that would be it. Much more useful in the long term than that parboiled singing head of his. The crow man must have overindulged on the homemade gooseberry wine the day he put his name to that thing. Would you mind if we took a photocopy of all that before you send it to whoever you're going to be sending it to? You know, as a memento. Well done, Ros. Eleanor was just going to mention that herself. Without her glasses on, she hadn't been able to get a proper look at that handwriting. The analysis of that would be fascinating. They could spend the rest of the day going through it, with the assistance of the Idiot's Guide to Graphology. And then, in the morning, when everyone else in the world was puzzling over it, they would be ready with all the necessary sound bites. They would be famous themselves. That would attract the attentions of others, no doubt about it. But they would be there at the beginning. It would be like Russ Conway, all over again. For Eleanor it would be, at any rate. Well, I'm rather anxious to get rid of it all, before I change my mind. I'm hoping it will be all over the place by tomorrow anyway. I've got my notes here, though. Are they any good? Ros snatched them from his hands. A cursory inspection revealed the same neat writing they knew so well by now. But something was different. There were doodles, although they were completely different to the ones they'd seen before. Handcuffs seemed to feature quite prominently. And truncheons. Were those truncheons? Maybe they weren't truncheons at all. In that case, the doodler hadn't strayed too far from his original inspiration. Even down to the umpteen mentions of Anthea. Righty-o, then. I don't want to keep you lovely ladies for a second longer than I have to. Please would you sign it? For Barney. In sombre and solemn silence, the two ladies bore witness to his bravery. Well, Eleanor's signature supported him in his bravery. Annie had just called the pair of them lovely ladies, too. She might never wash her ears out again. Ross's autograph may as well have been one gigantic question mark. So bizarre did she find his behaviour. And that included the fact that he had just called the pair of them lovely ladies. Some men would say anything to get you to sign their forgeries for them. Thank you, ladies. God bless you. He stood up and gave the most marvellous little bow. It was classy. It was refined. He'd seen it in a film once. No sex please were British. Was that it? At the very lowest point of that bow, something occurred to him. You know everything about Barney, right? Rolls shook her head. We very much abandoned him once he became too popular. It was for the best. Yes, but you know everything about him up to that point. 
Eleanor nodded. What sort of thing do you want to know about him? We can probably tell you everything from what his favourite brand of ice cream was to the name of the clinic where he got his Veruca treated. Humphrey gave her a sideways look, then another one for good measure. Then he looked away from her completely. Would you happen to know the name of his mother? Oh, yes. He gulped nervously. Is it Caroline? Eleanor nodded. He suddenly felt unsteady and clung to the side of his chair for support. That was his own mother's name. So many coincidences on this most momentous of days. Could it really be her? What do you want about your dozy mare? His mother's name's Daisy. Slowly, her words registered. Isn't that what he said? I thought that was what he said. It wasn't a big deal. He hadn't really let himself get any hopes up. Not too many, anyway. He regained the outward appearance of graceful composure and cut himself adrift from his chair. How could you possibly think those two names sounded alike? Don't blame me, I haven't got my glasses on. They're on your head, you dozy cow. Pardon? I said they're on your head. Ah, now I can find whatever it was I was supposed to be looking for in this bag. Now then, I wonder what that was. I mean, Caroline sounds nothing like Daisy. In fact, there is no possible way anybody could get those two names mixed up. What the devil was I looking for in this bag? Neither of them even saw him leave. Chapter 11 Tears were a very underrated device. They could turn their hands to absolutely anything. From dragging you down into the very depths of despair and then staying there with you to keep you company, all the way up to sharing with you the joys of a beautiful song, or a romantic gesture, or a pair of gorgeous heels which looked aces, but which then took it upon themselves to painfully cut off your circulation. At least he'd made it back to his office before giving free rein to them. That had been probably the most difficult thing he'd ever had to do. Much more difficult than posting that confession through the door of the police station. Bloody budget cuts. He'd been all psyched up to deliver himself into the welcoming arms of the plods, only to discover that they were all on flexi-time down there and that there would be nobody to even answer the door to him until at least five. It was so typical. He'd been forced to write his address down on that first page, just to make it extra easy for them, and then shove the sum total of his life through a letterbox. The indignity of it. And he must have posted one of his false fingernails along with it, too. He had desperately wanted to cry in front of Barney's fans. They probably wouldn't have minded. They must have seen hundreds of grown men crying in their time, what with the number of Barney's singing gigs they'd been to. He hadn't really expected them to tell him that his mother was also Barney's mother. Of course he hadn't. Even if she had been, it would have caused more problems than it solved. She would still have had to explain why she'd abandoned him, but not Barney. She would have had to explain how she loved Barney more than him. 
It was better for all concerned that things had not turned out that way. He would have loved to have had Barney as a brother, that was all. Someone he could take care of and fight for. Someone who would worship him and everything about him. Except possibly the news he'd got his own brother's girlfriend pregnant. He would have to have been impressed about the length of time Humphrey had been able to spend on doing it, though. It showed that Barney had excellent taste in women. Although he might not have seen it quite that way. If they were brothers, then Barney might well have felt entitled to spend an equal amount of time beating him up or giving him a private singing performance of three rounds of He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother, which would probably amount to the same thing anyway in terms of damage. Oh, that song was such a sad one. Sad, but uplifting at the same time. That marked off two corners of his lacrimal bingo card. The loss of his fingernail and the prohibitive cost of replacing it checked off a third. The fourth was a freebie, a treat to himself. The last time he would allow himself to feel one single ounce of self-pity. And by God had he striven to make the most of it. He was slumped over his desk and snivelling into his armpit when the door opened. He ought to have locked it. The police would assume he wasn't taking them seriously. They would at least expect him to make a game of it. To have them strolling right in and arresting him without any hoo-ha at all would look dreadful on his rap sheet. He should have locked it, then stood to one side and waited for them to whip out the battering ram. Then he could have opened the door and watched them try to break their way right through the wall opposite. He'd seen that happen in a film once. The remains of the day. Was that it? It couldn't be the police anyway because it wasn't even five o'clock yet. The taxman, it might have been him. According to the previous missives from his own accountant, currently on remand in one of Her Majesty's holding pens, and being disowned left, right and centre by anyone who'd ever heard of St Peter the Apostle, there was a forensic accountant making his way steadily through the false accounts of every single one of his clients. Humphrey wasn't quite sure what a forensic accountant did that was so very sinister, but his own accountant had described him as Quincy with an abacus. Did that mean that he lived on a boat, looked just like that bloke who used to be in The Odd Couple, and could solve maths problems almost single-handedly, causing roomfuls of people to faint at the very side of what he was doing? And did it mean he could be sure to deliver a moralising little lecture to the culprit into the bargain? In both cases, he was going to very much have his work cut out with Humphrey. His accounts were phoning all right, but of course, him being him, they were not false in the way anybody else's might have been. Others were all about squirrelling away every single farthing they could instead of paying tax on it, as if that was something to be proud of. Well, not him. He owed tax on money he'd never even earned in his whole lifetime. Especially now, when they would be looking for the 70% of nothing he'd stolen from Barney as well. His accountant had been squirrelling away money in Humphrey's name on behalf of those very same misers and skinflints. Those very same people who would now be screaming, Stop thief! in order to deflect Quincy's pathological attentions from them. They would have been able to slice off a chunk of the national debt with the tax money he supposedly owed. He would be quite a catch, really, all things considered. No, it couldn't have been the taxman who just opened his door. 
Oh, at five o'clock in the evening. Good Lord, was that the time? He'd better pull himself together and make himself look a bit more respectable. He wasn't the best advertisement for his own life coaching enterprise at that moment. Although he wouldn't have to worry about that for very much longer. That would soon be somebody else's problem. He wiped away the last of his self-pity and lifted his head to see precisely who it was out there. He didn't recognise her. She was quite old, maybe about the same age as his father, and she was looking at him quite strangely. Little wonder, really, given the state of him. He wiped his eyes and nose on his sleeve and sniffed anything which couldn't be wiped away back up into his nose and throat. He'd most definitely not seen anything like that in any film, but it was highly unlikely even someone like Clint Eastwood could have pulled off something like that and made it look classy anyway. Can I help you? Please forgive my appearance. I was just getting ready to shut up shop for the last time. I'm Humphrey Lovewell. He thought about trying to shake her hand, but then remembered he'd just used his cuff as a temporary handkerchief and thought again. This time tomorrow, everyone's going to know that name. For the right reasons. I'm sorry, you are... She didn't answer. Not straight away. Instead, she shook her head in something which looked very much like disbelief. Don't you recognise me, Humphrey? Good grief. Mum? He was halfway across the room with his arms extended towards her before he noticed she was deliberately backing away from him. I can't stop. I'm on my way out to celebrate my divorce. Finally. Only 45 years too late, but you can't have everything, can you? She meant 29 years too late, didn't she? Not 45. He wasn't even 45, although he would be next September. She must have meant 29 years. How very tedious that the police might be round to read him his rights at any moment. It meant he would have to just let her keep talking for as long as she intended to stay there. Or until the police took her in as well to assist them with their inquiries. It meant that he would not get the chance to even ask her why she hadn't said 29 years. That period of time was bad enough, considering she hadn't bothered to come and see him at any stage during it. Surely she couldn't have been suggesting she would rather not have seen him at all. I have been keeping an eye on you, from a distance. Oh, that's nice. I know all about your wife, ex-wife, Anthea. I liked her. You never met her. I've read all about her. And you. Some of the things I read about you, my goodness. You certainly didn't get any of that from your father. Oh, God. She keeps the charity shop across the street, correct? I can guarantee she'll be able to recognise me. I'm not exactly a regular customer, but she would definitely recognise me. She keeps the charity shop across the street, correct? I can guarantee she'd be able to recognise me. I'm not exactly a regular customer, but she would definitely recognise me. Oh, that's nice. He never felt inclined to come and see me, though. I have my spies. 
Bertha Belknap, and nailed on certainty. I've had my own life to lead as well, Humphrey, as have you. He wondered if she had managed to make a spectacular balls up of her own in quite the same way he had. Are you still with that milkman? Yes, but he's a gardener now. Part time, you know. He's getting on a bit. Oh, that's nice. He's done all sorts of jobs in his time. He's been a postman and a dustman. A dustman? Or whatever they call them these days. Ironic, isn't it? Given Michael's morbid fear of them. That wasn't fair of her. It wasn't a morbid fear of the profession itself. He was terrified of what he might have been, that was all. If he hadn't had his own father's violence to motivate him, together with his own intelligence and guile to give him the one chance in life that he'd needed. He said you might come by and see me. Yes, I'm sure he did. He told me I shouldn't believe a thing you said to me. That's all right. It wouldn't be like you to ever do a thing that man told you. That had to be a sign that you were becoming just a bit too predictable when a woman you hadn't spoken to for nearly 30 years could still accurately read your mind like that. You let me down, you know. I left you with him for your own good and you completely let me down. What have you done with your life? What a shame the talent wasn't a reciprocal one. He could never have guessed in a million years that she would have said a thing like that to him. What the hell? I don't think I quite understand. You could have made something of yourself. He would have helped you. He promised me that he would. He used to belt me all the time. And I have to say, I really didn't find that particularly helpful. But he looked after you, even though he didn't have to. Yeah. What a great guy. All these years he'd written him off as being merely an arrogant and manipulative old tosser, when in reality he was some kind of macho Florence Nightingale. Why was she staring at him like that? She was staring at his nose, of all things. His sleeve had only done half the job. That's what must have happened. How embarrassing. He tried sniffing hard again, but that just left him with flared nostrils. He must have looked like a fat Kenneth Williams. You know, you look just like your father. Yuck. Please don't say things like that to me. They are not compliments. How do you know? You've never even been introduced to him. Humphrey still must have looked like a fat Kenneth Williams. Even more so now, having added the open mouth and the wide eyes to his interpretation. Pardon? Michael's not your father. We had an arrangement where we weren't going to tell you, but after seeing who he divorced me for, I'm afraid he can stick that up his ass. I always assumed it would be you who would make that girl pregnant, you know. I seem to remember she was always hanging around you. She was a friend, nothing more. Anthea's the only girl for me. She always will be. She looked at her watch. There were much more subtle ways she could have done it, too, instead of brazenly turning her wrist around the full 180. Irrespective of that, what the hell had she just said? 
Your father was the milkman, who is now a gardener, having been a postman and a dustman. Although he was a gardener to begin with, that was where we think you were conceived. he just finished planting that apple tree in the garden and, well, one thing very much led to the other. The apple tree. The sole witness to every moment of quality time he had ever spent with Michael. Oh, the irony. That was an impressive collection of occupations for a man of dubious morals to have on his CV. Lots of opportunities there to earn some good tips in some strange ways. He remembered that gardener and that postman. A shifty-looking Liverpudlian bloke he was. Never ever said a word to Humphrey. If he really was his father, then he'd resisted the urge to spend any time with him, even more successfully than Michael had managed to do. He was always claiming to be having difficulty in finding things out in the shed, or wanting help to find a place in there for something large, which could neither be taken back to the sorting office, nor left out in full view of the neighbours. His mother had always rushed out to oblige. Oh, yuck! Where had Michael himself been while all these manual labours were going on? He must have been strutting around a courtroom somewhere. There was no time for the golf course or the clubhouse in those days. Not when he was first establishing himself as someone who meant business in those combined fields in the future. I did always assume you left because Michael worked too hard and neglected you after I was born. Now you're telling me you were never even faithful to him at all? I shouldn't have married him. It's as simple as that. Oh, it was, was it? She looked as though she was at least considering whether to show him some small amount of contrition. In the end, though, she obviously decided against him. I mean, I was never in love with him. Don't forget, Humphrey, I knew him in Leighton in the old days. He was my ticket out of that life, that's all. Then, by the time I met the love of my life, it was too late to do anything about it. You could have left him. Left him sooner, I mean. I thought about it. The money, though. The truth is, I didn't particularly want to leave that. You didn't so much mind leaving me, though. That was Michael's idea, not mine. Well, all right, it was my idea, too. He made it seem very attractive. I mean, he knew you weren't his, but he was still keen for a son, you know, to follow in his footsteps. And he has looked after you. But you never thought to come back and see me. He's been a bastard to me. I find that hard to believe. He was always far too boring to be a bastard. He needed a lot of baiting before he would even so much as raise his voice, as I recall. Apart from if he ever lost a game of Monopoly. He always did hate losing. I think that was probably the thinking behind him being so keen to take responsibility for you. To beat me and Ernie. Ernie? Sorry, it's a nickname. He was a milkman, you know. Michael promised me he would give you everything. Just so long as I didn't interfere. I only wanted the best for you. Christ on a pogo stick. He would need at least an 18-month jail sentence, just to give him enough time to sort the events of that day out in his mind. He frowned at her. How do you know he's not my father? She frowned back at him. 
child because the idea just simply never occurred to me. Why would I want a son whose father I couldn't stand the sight of? Doesn't make much sense to me. But it was okie dokie for her to up sticks and leave Humphrey behind there with him. Okay. Even if he was, it still wouldn't make any difference. Any man can be a father. It was now a good time to tell her about his own recent adventures in that regard. One man's wife, another man's girlfriend, both in the same evening. She did actually strike him as the sort of person who might well have been impressed with a claim to fame like that. He didn't like this woman very much. The realisation that he would rather have been in that room alone with a bottle of iron brew and Bertha Belknap very much supported that theory. Why are you telling me all this now? What possible benefit can there be to me? Or you? I wanted you to know the truth before Michael told you. I can't think why he didn't do that years ago anyway, just to spite me. No, nor could Humphrey. Did you have any other children? Ones that she hadn't managed to dump onto the nearest random punter, for instance. One other. You and Ernie. Yes, of course. And that's not his name. I told you already, that's a nickname. Oh yeah, that's right. Because he used to be a milkman. The mind boggled as to what he might have seen fit to call her in return. Full fat, perhaps? Or how about something literally from out of left field? Clover or Buttercup? Or even Daisy? Wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me I'm somebody's brother? She nodded, checking her watch yet again. Actually, that sounded like a prudent thing for him to be doing as well. A quarter past five. What's Ernie's surname? She looked at him for a moment and then headed for the door. She couldn't leave yet. He had to know. It's Adams, isn't it? His name's Ernie Adams. With a horrible sneer of contempt, she opened the door. No, it isn't. It isn't? He felt sick. No, it isn't. She paused. By the time he didn't realise what she said next, she was already gone. I already told you. His name's not Ernie. Ernie.